for the past couple of days, beginning Thursday evening and ending yesterday, just before noon, your pastors, elders, and deacons secluded themselves. Jim mentioned this earlier. Some of you have been praying for us. We withdrew from our normal routines in order to spend time together trusting in the promise that God is present with those who gather in his name. And we did gather in his name. We removed ourselves from the normal demands of everyday life so that we might more clearly hear him speak to us. For we believe Jesus. When he said the church is his church, we call it our church, but we mean by that that we belong to it, not it to us. And we take to heart it is his church. And we also believe that Jesus promised to build his church. And those are words of great comfort and encouragement to those of us who are called to care for his people, his church. And we know that he is the one who does the heavy lifting, though we have our part in the process. And then also, along with his stated intention, he promised to guide us. He said it in a poetic way, but the upshot of it is, is that God has already established in heaven the course that we should take. And yet that lays on us an obligation to follow him and to listen to him as he carries out his purposes for us. All of that is found in Matthew 16, a wonderful, powerful, and informative teaching on the church, which we as a church have considered in the past. And that's why we retreated to Fenwick Island to, to seek his direction for this church. And I just want you to know how wonderful that time was. <laughs> First, it, it gives me enormous amount of joy to say to you without any reservation of any kind that your elders and deacons love the Lord Jesus Christ and love you, and that love is strong and deep. And then the time was, well, I don't know if I should use the word productive, though it was indeed productive, yet maybe a better descriptor would be revealing. For I believe that we came away with a stronger sense of God's direction for our church. And the truth is, as a church, we have much to be grateful for. And the last thing I want to tell you about our time away together leads us into our message today. We talked about many things, things that are important to this church, but also important to us as people. And we don't see things, all things, the same way. Surprise, right? I mean, we have different thoughts about different things. Something which may strike me as very important, even vital, someone else might think deserves a low spot on the priority list if it's even listed at all. There isn't any rancor or divisiveness in this. It's just a fact. But I have to tell you, through that process, there was a gradual movement from our different starting points to a place where we all had come together facing the same direction and beginning to move in that direction, even though we still think differently about some things. 
We, we were brought there by the leading of the Spirit of God to a point of unity, not uniformity, where we all see things exactly the same way, not groupthink, not a kind of an echo chamber. It wasn't just one strong person getting his way and everyone else falling in line. Rather, we were united in love and in our desire to serve God and you. And I have to tell you, that's a powerful thing. And it's more easily achieved in a setting like that than in some others. I'll grant you that, but it is powerful nonetheless. And I think, if I, if I may be allowed to tell you what I think, that that accord which your elders and deacons have is part of the reason that we as a church enjoy that same kind of unity. It's not the only reason, of course, but it's a part of it. And that kind of thing, sadly enough to say, is rare, and I know that, and you probably do too. Still, we have reason to expect, don't we, that, uh, that people in the same church ought to have this, that kind of relationship. But when we get outside of the local church, we begin to see more and more things which divide us. And, and that kind of unity which Jesus prayed for becomes harder to find. Now I have to tell you, I'm confident in you. I believe that you who are here are serious about your faith and about following Jesus Christ. And because of that, I believe you already know uh, where this kind of unity comes from, this real harmony. You already know where it comes from. And if I were to ask you, I'm certain that you would tell me it comes from loving others. And you would be right. But our text today, and we are again in Romans and again in chapter 15, tells us what we are to do to remove the barriers which keep us from doing just that, which keep us from loving each other as we should. When we take to heart today's text, divisions begin disappearing, and we are drawn together in unity. And so we read in verse 7 of that chapter, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. When, when we do that, we've come to a place of disappearing divisions, a place where unity begins. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Your elders and deacons love you, and they love one another. And we're able to do that, not because we're without fault, but because we accept each other as fellow believers all because Christ first accepted us. And if we desire for ourselves and other believers what Jesus desires for us, what he prayed for us, this, this unity that the world cannot ignore, then we need to answer some questions about what it means to accept one another. And of course, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, You'll remember that we've talked about this and that that Greek word we translate accept means to warmly welcome and invite in. Ann and I were living out in the Midwest. I was pastor of my first 
real church, first full-time pastor, and Jerry and Bev invited us over for a meal, and we pulled up into the driveway, and as I was pulling down that driveway, Jerry walks out the front door of his house, down the steps, and he waits by the car for us, and he took me by the hand and shook it, and then he waits over to Ann, and he gave her a hug, and he said, come right on in, and he brought us into his house. That's a picture of the acceptance that we're talking about. But in this passage, we're told more about this acceptance. We are to accept one another as Christ accepted us. Which means, first, <laughs> that we're to accept others in the same way that Christ accepted you. So let me ask you, what limits has he put on that? <laughs> I mean, hasn't he accepted you in love and absolutely unconditionally? Hasn't he accepted us in spite of our sin and our failing? Indeed, it's the acceptance which allows for the cure for our sin to be applied. And next to that, none of other other differences really matter. And secondly, we are to accept others because Christ accepted us. And if he accepted us, how can we not accept them? That doesn't mean it's easy. It just means it's necessary. Something else needs to be said about this kind of acceptance. Maybe it's obvious to you, but it's not to others. It needs to be said. Only the believer, the person who has put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit lives, is able to open themselves up so that they can accept others so completely and totally. <clears throat> no, it's not always easy to do. Sin, our own and theirs, has a part in making it difficult. And yet, besides sin, we're just different which increases the challenge. Now, I think I've already acknowledged it's easier to do in your own church, isn't it? But, but even then, it takes some effort, though usually we manage to do it. It's easier still in a, in a leadership retreat. But the Scripture here is addressing, uh, the context discloses it, one of the deepest and most significant divisions in human history, that between the Jew and the Gentile. They're, they're being told, these people that are so far apart, to accept one another. The Gentile must warmly welcome into his or her life the Jew. And the Jew must do the same for the Gentile. And whatever divisions we have, whatever divides us from others, is not greater than that divide. And if that division can disappear, then so can ours. Now, in our own day, I suppose it's the division between the races that we have to overcome. Black people, white people, brown people, yellow people, whatever other colors of people there might be, all see things from a, a different perspective. We don't always understand where the other person is coming from. Often we're bewildered. Sometimes we're angry. Hopefully we grieve. But those divisions are certainly no greater than that between the Jew and the Gentile, and they too can be overcome. 
But I know what you're thinking there. <laughs> you're thinking the divisions between Jews and Gentiles haven't disappeared, and it doesn't look like they're going away anytime soon. And you're right. But the command to accept one another was given to Jews and Gentiles who had put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is a commandment given to Christians about other Christians. It's a recognition that all of those who put their trust in the cross are our brothers and sisters and are part of the same family. And that's simply not the case for people who have other religions or for people who call themselves Christians but aren't. Jesus Christ and being in him is the only solution to our present division. In him, we overcome, and we accept one another as Christ accepted us. Now, you guys have seen this before, but I don't care. I like it, <laughs> and I'm going to do the illustration again, and, and I'm going to try to expand on it a little bit, but I've done this before, right? I hold up this hand, and I tell you, let that represent a circle, and I hold up this hand, and let that represent a circle. If I put everything that a Methodist or a Presbyterian who's a Bible-believing Methodist or Presbyterian in this circle, and I put everything that we in Y Bible Church put in this circle, and I put them together, you've got almost complete overlap. We agree on almost everything. It's stuff out at the edges that we disagree on, and it's all secondary stuff. Now, I'm not going to go be a Presbyterian pastor. But I don't let that disagreement stand between me and them. And I love them, and I accept them. For years, when I was in the Midwest, I met with a Methodist and Presbyterian pastor every Thursday for prayer. We loved, and still do, love Jesus Christ. And if you take a black person and a white person who know Christ, I don't care what their divisions are. I don't care how they see life. You put that together, and there's going to be some differences, and those differences might be hard. But we're the same. And that's where our unity comes. Now, I have to tell you, this acceptance doesn't mean we don't confront those who are continuing in sin or put them out of the church if they don't repent, because we do. We must. It's what Christ commands. But that has nothing to do with our acceptance of them as family. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted to you. <clears throat> now, I... I spent a lot of time this morning, additional time, adding to what we've already said over the last couple of weeks about this acceptance because it is so important. And the command here is so broad. It's wider than what we've seen before in chapter 14 and the first part of 15. It goes beyond just the weak and strong Christian to those just in our own church. It addresses more than merely our individual responsibilities, important as that is. It causes us to look away from that which is local. It calls us to accept other believers from other cultures, no matter how deep the divide. And 
There's power in that. It demonstrates God to the world. And what our text does next is it, it, it gives us several reasons which encourage us. They speak to our heart and help move us in that direction which God is leading all of his people. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to look at each of them briefly this morning. They're important because they tell us why people as divided as the Jews and the Gentiles would break down the barriers so that they could completely accept one another. And then after we look at these things, we're going to try to understand where this path ultimately leads. Now, the first reason the text gives us for making whatever effort we need to to break down the barriers and accept one another is because it brings praise to God. Verse 7 again. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. I have to tell you, in a sense, this is kind of like a no-brainer. <laughs> I mean, if you love God, you want to praise Him yourself. But you also want, uh, by your life, to cause other people to be praised by Him too. So how does that happen? How, how does it happen? Well, individual believers find themselves accepted, w- warmly welcomed, into the lives of others when they had no right to that, when they couldn't demand it of them, but they're accepted by others, and they praise God for it. And individuals accept others and find a a, a great freedom and a strong friendship with people they would, would not otherwise have had anything to do with. Their paths would never have crossed, and they praise God for what he's done. And then, two people with differences are united in the way that we're talking about, and it shows the power of the gospel and the work of God in our world, which exalts him, and that draws other people into the kingdom so that the hearts of those who were once far from God now sing his glory. And when we do this, when we act like Jesus in this matter, we demonstrate God to the world, and it brings him praise. And the wider the divide, the greater that demonstration. In other parts of our world today, men and women and even children who put their faith in Jesus Christ are being persecuted for that faith. And yet we hear this. We hear story after story of the persecutor putting their faith in Christ themselves. And this happens because the believer overcame. He or she loved their enemy. And to do that, they first had to accept him. It's common to hear the, the persecuted Christians say something like this. I, I hate the Muslim religion. I see what it does. But I love the Muslims. Their willingness to accept them, in spite of all they have done, draws those other people into the kingdom over and over and over again. It's happening. Our brothers and sisters are suffering, but the suffering brings people into the faith. And I have to tell you, even when the divide is not so wide, this kind of acceptance is already so rare that it stands out especially when it's consistent. Christ's kind of acceptance by one Christian for another 
exhibits over time a cumulative effect as powerful as a closing of a wide gap. So if you, if you love God, <laughs> if you want him to be praised, then you'll work at removing any barrier that might keep you from accepting another believer. Look, I have to stop right here and say this. Um, it, it's your responsibility. I, I mean, I hear people say all the time, if someone thinks that, that's their problem. No, it's not. It's our problem. Because we represent Jesus Christ who loves them. Now, if you love him, you want him to be praised, and you'll do what you can to remove those barriers. And then if that were not reason enough, we're reminded of God's faithfulness and mercy to all people. And the verses 8 and the first part of verse 9. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, I have to tell you, there's an awful lot going on here, and we're going to try to look at it a little more closely. We're still going to try to be brief. But we can summarize it by saying God is faithful and merciful to all people. And that matters to our hearts. Now, there's a really amazing statement uh, that we just read, and we're told here in this verse is that Jesus is the servant to the Jews. And the, the verb tense there means it's something that already happened in the past, but it continues into the present, present so that Jesus is now or still the servant of the Jews. Now, you understand we don't stumble over that too much because we've been accustomed to talking about Jesus as a servant. But left to ourselves, that's not how human beings think about God. Our faith turns everything on its head. This is a concept that's unique to Christianity. And Jesus is the servant of the Jews, according to this text, on behalf of the truth of God. So what Jesus is doing here as this servant is, is he's upholding God's truth. And he does that so as to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. Now, you understand what that means. You understand what's going on here. See, God made promises to the Jewish people, but they've never been able to fulfill their part. So Jesus comes, and he fulfills it for them. And they're going to inherit all of God's promises by God's grace because of Jesus' work, not their own. And one of the things which demonstrates this truth to people on the outside is the acceptance of one another. And the Gentiles, well, well they see that, and they, and they see what Jesus has done for the Jew, and they, verse 9, glorify God for his mercy. We understand what Jesus has done for the Jew, and in so doing, we know he's faithful to his word. We know the promises he makes will be kept. We know, and Lord, allow me to say with humility and let us hear it all of us with meekness but we know don't we that our Lord Jesus Christ is the servant of the Gentiles too to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and that's got to encourage us that's got to matter 
You know, I have to tell you, my father is an honest man, the most honest person I think I, I've ever met in my life. I, I've known that all of my life, even, even when I was a young child. I'd hear other kids talk about their father and how he was taking things from work and how it was such a joke to them. And my father would walk 10 miles to give something back to someone. And I commented one time on that honesty to his mother and my grandmother. And she said, yeah, you can't imagine Earl doing anything else, can you? And I have to tell you, although I know he's still a sinner, honesty and my dad just go together. On the other hand, you may forgive someone who lies to you, but if they do it often enough, you get to a place where you don't believe anything they say. You see, faithfulness matters, and God's faithfulness speaks to our hearts, and it moves us to accept others. Now, we want God to be praised, knowing that Jesus has made himself our servant, moves our hearts to embrace other believers, no matter how different they might be, leading to disappearing divisions. And that, that total acceptance by one believer for another has always been God's plan. It's what he intended right from the beginning. Now we see that in the different quotes from the Old Testament scriptures uh, which Paul employs next. I just want to read them to you starting at the end of verse 9 and following. As it is written, therefore I praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing your praises of your name. In verse 10, again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And finally verse 11, And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. That moves my heart. Doesn't yours? (laughs) To know that all along, through those long years, God was accomplishing his purpose to bring you and me together with the chosen people into his kingdom. That's God's purpose for choosing the Jew. It was so the door could be open for the Gentiles too. You know, when you think someone that you love has forgotten your birthday or anniversary, it hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. But when you realize they only pretended so they could surprise you. Your entire outlook changes in a blink, in a flash. That's what this does to our hearts. That God always intended to bring in the Gentile changes the look of all of history. And knowing that, I don't want to do anything to stand between me and other Christians. May all of the divisions disappear. Now, that only happens. It can only happen because of Jesus. Verse 12, another quote from the Old Testament. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse, meaning Jesus, will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, in him the Gentiles were hope. So, as divided as the Jew and the Gentiles were, uh, breaking down those barriers, we do it by completely accepting one another. And we do it because it brings praise to God. And, and we do it because Christ as servant has demonstrated God's faithfulness and mercy to all people. And, and to know such unity has always been God's plan through Jesus, the hope of all people. Now, all of this has been leading up to something more. 
And it's kind of hard to describe what it is. But um, let us, for now, well, let's just call it, um, well, let's not call it anything yet now. And let's look and see what it says. As the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these things, so the Spirit moved in his heart to pray this prayer in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is something. (laughs) There's something beautiful and moving in these words. As Paul thought about what it meant for people as different as the Jew and the Gentile to accept one another, as Christ accepted them, it's as though he were seeing beyond this world and into eternity. Certainly, having the God of hope fill us with all joy and all peace so that we overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit is not our normal experience but we're tasting it now. And it is where we're headed. So, so I suppose we could take this apart piece by piece so we might better understand it, but I want to approach it um, a different way. All of us here, if we're Christians, we know that God has always existed and always will. The truth is revealed in the Bible a number of different ways. Uh, In the book of Revelation, God says, I am the Alpha and Omega who is and who was and who is to come. And the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus Christ that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And even the name of God declares that same truth when God says to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. He is self-existent and nothing else is. It is a recurring theme throughout our Bible that God, and only God, created all that there is. Beginning in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which records his mighty acts of creation, and the last book of Revelation, which proclaims you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So Christians down through the centuries delight in saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We know that God existed before the earth was or the stars lit the night sky or the sun sun shone before any human being or any plant or animal before time itself God is. And when we think about eternity, we think of it from within time, of course, because that's where we are. And we can look forward easily enough, I think. We imagine living forever in the presence of our Lord and being united with our believing loved ones who went on before us, trusting the promises of a perfect world to come without sin or sadness, just ongoing joy forever and ever. And we can... We can see that at least dimly. But when we try to look backward into eternity before time, and I don't know how else to talk about it without using a a time word, but when we look back to the place with time when it was just God, our intellect is beggared. 
It defies our imagination. I suppose other people may have had the kinds of thoughts or images, really, which I've had not, uh, well, many years ago, actually, in thinking about it. Probably we never get very far from the idea of place of some kind, which we conceive as maybe at first as kind of outer space but without any stars. <laughs> but then we know that can't be right. It can't be darkness. And it can't be empty because God is there. And so our mind shifts. And then there's just whiteness without interruption. The idea of a huge block of white granite resting on a white surface surrounded by a backdrop of white apprehends our thoughts. And then some people might find it difficult to keep the idea from sneaking into their mind that God must have been sitting around rather bored with way too much time on his hands. None of that is right. We know it. Looking backward into eternity defeats our knowledge and all of its categories until we remember the Trinity. And though it's still beyond our ken, a pale light of understanding begins to glow and cross our path. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit has always been. And it has always been overflowing with love and joy for one another. The Eastern Church had a word to describe that time before time began. Perichoresis is where we get our word choreography. It means to dance, to flow around, to go to, to step toward, to approach. It means to dance. In the endless years before time began, which is nonsense to say, for God does not dwell in time, never has, never will, yet we have no other way of speaking about it. So in those endless years before creation, that dance was going on. Allow me to quote some more eloquent authors. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life. The persons within God exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement and overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, not a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating, activity, a life, a kind of drama, a kind of dance. And the pattern of this three-personal life is a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of the universe. It is out of that overflowing love and joy that God created so he could share it all with us. A dance. That's all God has to offer. That's it. But then there is nothing else. And everything of value is in it. What he's offering us is himself. And, and as we accept other believers, as Christ accepted us, we take our place in the heavenly ballroom and we dance in the circle of the living God accepted 
and accepting. And it all starts now. Accept one another. Accept every person who names the name of Christ. Just as Christ accepted you. Why don't you pray with me? Father, um, we talked about a lot of kind of large things today. Things bigger than ourselves. The things you call us to. Things that we know we need you for. Things that we can't do on our own. But Lord, I think I've heard you say to me in times past, so as others testify that though we don't know how to do it feel like we can't all you're looking for is people who are willing help us to be willing for your glory in Jesus name